Earlier this year, President Joe Biden signed a bill that didn't attract too much fanfare. Between half and three-quarters of all women report that they have faced some form of sexual harassment in the workplace. And too often, they're denied a voice and a fair chance to do anything about it. Today, we send a clear and strong message that we stand with you for safety, dignity, and for justice. The bill banned the use of something called forced arbitration in sexual misconduct cases. Basically, it means that now, if you experience harassment or assault in the workplace, you can't be forced to work the problem out with a mediator instead of bringing a lawsuit. In most news publications, the bill barely made a splash. But for some activists, the bill represented the culmination of a long-held goal. That was a Me Too bill that was specifically advocated for in, in the terms of that movement. You know, it took five years or four and a half years for it to pass and be signed into law. But the movement is what got it there. Christina Cotarucci is a senior writer at Slate. And she says that these days, it's hard to remember a time when Me Too was not an instantly recognizable phrase. Activist Tarana Burke founded an organization by that name in 2006 to support survivors of sexual assault. Then, in October of 2017, it took on a new significance with the release of bombshell reporting that exposed famed movie director Harvey Weinstein for a pattern of sexual assault and misconduct within Hollywood. The wall of silence surrounding Harvey Weinstein officially collapsing. Today, new accusations of sexual assault, including rape. Even Hollywood A-listers Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow raising their voices, adding to the avalanche of accusations. The whole season for me was a mix of nausea and exhilaration. I just remember being completely almost like my life was saturated in those months with these deep and uncomfortable questions and um, almost like every day coming to work and wondering, who are we going to hear from next? And what public figure is going to be unveiled as a perpetrator of abuse? And it occurs to me that Me Too was the kind of story that was impossible to ignore and for many painful to cover. But on the other hand, there was also something so obvious about its rallying cry. No one in any workplace should be subjected to sexual coercion, harassment, or violence. When you think back on the movement, do you think there was some power to its very simplicity and self-evident nature? I do, because it was it was easy for anyone to find an entrance point to. Although it was, you know, broadly a movement for gender equity, we're all implicated by gender, no matter what gender we have. Um, this wasn't something that people could say, you know, it, it's terrible that it happened to those people, but, you know, I've never witnessed something like that, or I'm not part of a leadership team that has to consider this issue. To hear that experience from the point of view of somebody who was a victim and a survivor of that kind of abuse puts a a completely different lens on the whole issue. Today on the show, the legacy of Me Too. How have the last five years really changed the way we respond to workplace harassment and abuse? I'm Mary C. Curtis sitting in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
The allegations that came out in the Me Too movement were shocking, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were surprising. Especially in the entertainment industry, the difference Me Too made was that it allowed survivors to say the quiet part out loud. I do remember thinking that the things that Harvey Weinstein was accused of, we all sort of assumed that those things were happening in Hollywood. Even the way people use the term casting couch to me implied that we kind of know and assume that um, producers and studio heads and directors and whoever are using their power to coerce ambitious young women into sex. And, you know, obviously Harvey Weinstein was accused of and convicted of doing all manner of repulsive and terrible things. But when you get down to it, the dynamic that he was embodying was something that a lot of people kind of accepted about Hollywood and thought of as like an almost consensual transaction that women are sort of selling their youth and beauty and ambition and, you know, men are offering them job opportunities for it. And the more I thought about it, the the harder it was to disentangle what Harvey Weinstein was accused of from the way that a lot of people assume Hollywood works and accept that Hollywood works. And so I thought at the time, like, yes, these accusations seem singularly horrific, but I would not be surprised if plenty of other people were doing something very similar to Harvey Weinstein. And uh, sure enough, that was... Obviously, just the 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 very beginning of a really terrible slew of stories that we'd come to hear uh, in the ensuing months. Now, in your recent piece for Slate, you did take stock of some definite impacts of Me Too. Let's start with the Hollywood as the industry most directly affected in this way. There were some big changes in the industry, right? Yes, definitely. It's almost sad to list out the ways that the industry has changed because it just goes to show how long overdue these changes were. So SAG-AFTRA, the major union of actors in Hollywood, now has guidelines that says, uh, we discourage meetings in hotel rooms. (laughs) So that's great. That's a start. Because people are less likely to sexually assault you if other people can see you, you know, in the lobby of a hotel or in an office building. So there we go. That's like the lowest possible bar that's set. But there was a a study that came out of producers who had worked with Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, these are there are many dozens of producers who have worked with him over the course of his career. And they found that these producers were far more likely to hire women writers after what happened with Harvey Weinstein. So again, kind of sad that this is what it took for producers to think like, huh, yeah, maybe we need some more women uh, in the room. And what sorts of new films could we make if if women's voices were represented? Or maybe just like, let's make sure that I don't seem like as much of a jerk as Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Honestly, one of the things that excited me the most about Hollywood's transformation in the wake of Me Too was the increasing popularity of intimacy coordinators because these are particular instances in which a workplace is by necessity sexualized when there are people, you know, having a nude scene or simulating sex with one another in front of a camera. 
And, you know, we did hear a lot of people saying, you know, I felt abused or I felt violated in these situations or someone used that as an opportunity to sort of go too far in the course of filming this scene. Now Hollywood has uh, a third party there to say, we're setting boundaries in advance. I'm going to be here to go through it with you. And we know exactly what is and isn't acceptable before we go into this so that if somebody crosses that boundary we know that it was a boundary crossing. We all agreed to it in advance, and I was here to watch you do it. And I think that was an incredibly overdue but powerful way to ensure that even when sex is part of the job, there's no reason for a sexual violation to take place. And Me Too's impacts weren't confined to the entertainment realm. In November of 2017, a group of Latina farm workers wrote a letter of solidarity to the stars who'd spoken out about their experiences. In the letter, the women claimed to be out of sight and out of mind for most people in this country. And they explained that they also faced routine and systemic sexual harassment on the job. Crazy enough, Hollywood listened. And a number of celebrities poured money into an organization that would pay for lawyers in misconduct cases brought on by low-income workers. We're talking millions and millions of dollars was then set up into a legal defense fund administered by the National Women's Law Center, which is a very effective and long-standing advocacy group, in order for this law center to be able to pay attorneys to take on cases that maybe the attorneys wouldn't have been able to take on because the people alleging those things don't have enough money to hire a good lawyer to advocate for them. And there have been thousands of people in all industries across the U.S. who are now able to bring a case against their employers or somebody in their workplace because of the money that women in Hollywood decided to uh, put to this cause. And this is where the movement changes from just awareness raising or consciousness raising, which I actually think in this movement was a lot more powerful than um, a lot of other quote unquote awareness raising movements were. But this this gives it some actual teeth. And to say this sexual harassment is not just something that can be stopped interpersonally, but we need to make it extremely unattractive for businesses to condone and turn a blind eye to sexual harassment. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because I am curious about how the Hollywood movement did affect people in factories and fields, blue collar, pink collar workers. So that's interesting to hear that that gave movement to some activity in those other areas. Have laws changed in meaningful ways that affect everyone? They actually have. There have been several states, more than a dozen states, that have passed laws banning non-disclosure agreements, either, you know, in general or specifically in sexual harassment and assault settlements, which during the course of Me Too, non-disclosure agreements really came out as one of the major barriers to people going public with their claims of sexual assault and harassment, thus allowing perpetrators to go on to violate somebody else. There's also been plenty of states reconsidering their laws about sexual harassment and extending the statute of limitations so that people who don't realize what they experienced was sexual harassment until years later can now go back and 
hold the perpetrators to account. Again, these laws are, it's hard to measure their effect because they're not only effective because of the people who use them and, you know, do take their perpetrators to court or whatever, but also because of the incentive system they set up for employers to create a workplace in which sexual harassment is not tolerated because now there's a financial disincentive involved where a company that finds it easier to ignore when sexual harassment takes place or whose uh, leadership is involved in sexual harassment, they're now going to have to pay if they continue in that vein. And so, you know, in surveys of HR professionals and employees in the years following Me Too, large majorities of people were saying, yes, you know, our board of directors have have mentioned sexual harassment for literally the first time. Or, you know, now it's the law in our state that we have to have a policy about it and a a mandatory training about it. Who knows how effective trainings is, but you know what? It's a step. One way that people do tend to tally up the wins and losses when they're talking about Me Too is to take stock of who is and who isn't prosecuted and incarcerated for sex crimes. For example, in many ways, Weinstein's 2020 trial in New York was seen as a referendum on Me Too. So why might a reporter like you reject this framing of the movement? Because first of all, the Me Too movement wasn't just about, in my opinion, a handful of the very worst actors in our society or in Hollywood and the people with the highest tally of individuals they victimized. It was, at its core, about changing the way we think about sexual power dynamics and what is and isn't appropriate in the workplace and outside the workplace. So if the most visible and most you know, the committer of the most repulsive acts was convicted. I think that's the very least of what Me Too should have expected and wanted. These are extremely complicated issues that the criminal justice system is often incapable of solving and addressing. Add to that the fact that a lot of the offenses that people were bringing up during Me Too weren't necessarily crimes. They were instances of abuse of power or interpersonal violations that we as a society should want to prevent and rethink and stop, but aren't and and maybe shouldn't be addressed by, you know, a judge or a jury. We'll be right back. There are also some results of the Me Too movement that are harder to measure, less tangible, and one of them is us. It's the way our industry, journalism, handles accusations of sexual violence. I've noticed that. Can you tell me about the difference in your reporting uh, on sexual violence pre-Me Too and post? People are so much more willing to talk about it. I never really used to get people sort of cold emailing me saying, hey, this is a thing that's happening in my workplace or my college campus until Me Too brought it up. 
And people realized that, you know, I can email a reporter about it and they might make something happen. Um, it's really disappointing that a lot of times it does take a public outcry for an institution to make a change, but that's how things work sometimes. And we've seen that journalism has been a very effective accountability measure. And this is something that we never really talked about in the workplace until Me Too made these kinds of stories a lot easier to report and more attractive to report and made our editors more likely to see a story like this as reportable because in the past it was really common for people to say, look, this sounds like a really horrible situation, but how are we going to prove it? Or, you know, how do you fact check something like this? Or the other person denies it. And, you know, all we have now is a he said, she said scenario. But what a, a lot of the reporters at the forefront of Me Too showed us is that there are ways to bring enough factual reporting to a scenario that makes a story printable <laughs> and and also extremely newsworthy. Now, some activists seem to think that raising awareness can be enough to change the tide on an issue like this. And a lot of other people disagree. But Me Too might be an actual example of how raising awareness did change things. What do you think? I would agree with that. Um, I'm extremely skeptical of the concept of raising awareness because so many of the things that we hear awareness being raised of, we are already aware of. Sexual harassment and assault is not one of those issues. I think a lot of people have a very abstract awareness of it, but are uncomfortable talking about it. And the people who have the most intimate knowledge of it are discouraged from speaking about it. Even when Me Too was happening, there were, you know, a whole slew of French actresses wrote a letter saying, you know, we want to maintain the eroticism in the male-female relationship. And, you know, what are these young women complaining about? There is so much conditioning out there that tells somebody who has survived a sexual violation that something they did was sort of responsible for this, or they're making a big deal out of nothing. What Me Too did was give people enough instances of similar sounding scenarios that there was no way to say this was something that you did. Because if it happened to thousands and maybe millions of people, it wasn't just you and you are not the reason why this happened. And not only that, but it's okay to talk about it. And it takes a lot of support for many people to feel comfortable going public with something like that, in part because it's sexual. And we don't talk about sex in the public sphere in very comfortable ways. And Me Too said, you know, it's, it, it is about sex, but really it's about power and dignity and the humiliations that are visited upon us in sexualized ways. And this is a workplace issue. This isn't a sex issue. And even though it's a movement for gender equity, you know, that's a very amorphous concept. And a lot of people who engaged and participated in Me Too have different thoughts on exactly how gender dynamics should work and, you know, what parts of feminism they feel comfortable advocating for. But the idea that we all deserve to be safe and have control over our own bodies in this way, that's something that 
a lot of people can relate to and see themselves in. There is an open question as to when Me Too ended. Where would you pin it? Or would you say we're still living in the movement's wake? I think we're still living in it. You know, we're we're not in the sort of throes of Me Too in which every single day on social media or reading the news was about the worst and most shameful moments of someone's life. Um, I would say that part maybe ended a couple months after Brett Kavanaugh joined the Supreme Court. But even when you read stories today about people coming forward about abuses in their workplace, they often talk about it in the language of Me Too, sometimes even using that hashtag. And I can't hear about or read about people doing that today without thinking, would that have happened before Me Too? Because the way people are able to connect now around these stories that Me Too encouraged people to talk about is so different. There's power in naming something, really. Of course. And this might sound small, but even allowing people to use the term Me Too and just have it be shorthand for everything that Me Too means instead of saying, you know, here's my individual case of sexual harassment, but no, saying, you know, this this Me Too thing happened to me or like I'm having this Me Too moment in my workplace makes it so much easier for people to talk about and connects it to what's happening in so many other places in a way that makes it feel less of a solo struggle or, you know, an individual thing that's happening that's like hard to deal with and so idiosyncratic. Like, no, it's no matter what the particulars of any of these workplace sexual harassment organizing campaigns are about, Me Too can encompass that. And it's very powerful to recognize oneself as part of a movement of people who have seen successes too. So it's not just that, oh, we're sort of reinventing this struggle. It's something that other workplaces have made changes around. That's powerful too. Thank you so much, Christina Catarucci, for coming on What Next? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Christina Catarucci is a senior writer at Slate. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of help from Anna Phillips and Jarrett Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. Filling in for Mary Harris, I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist for Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Mary Harris will be back in this feed tomorrow.